software engineering teams often experience growing pains as they grow beyond a single team or code base. There are matters of communication, collaboration challenges, agility, and issues of code ownership to contend with. And in this episode, we intend to address those. In today's round of cocktails, we are joined by a former thought worker and an independent software delivery consultant who shares with us some real-world advice on how to deal with an organization's growing pains, some simple yet innovative ways to address technical debt, and discuss why we should treat our internal platforms as products of our own. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Welcome to episode 42 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo, and joining me from Sydney, Australia, is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. Good morning, Kevin. All right, good morning. And our guest for this episode is a former consultant at ThoughtWorks and now works as an independent software delivery consultant based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Most of his work centers around supporting and advising startup engineering teams and providing custom developer training. He enjoys sharing his opinions in conference talks, podcasts, and writing, often with a focus on agile engineering practices. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us for a round of cocktails is Pete Hodgson, Hey, Pete. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello, and thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Uh, Pete, you describe your uh, passions as helping engineering organizations uh, develop strategies to deal with the issues they face when they move past a single team or, and or a single code base, for that matter. What are the challenges that organizations can typically expect when that occurs? I see two different challenges um, that are kind of like almost the opposite um, opposite things happening. So the first challenge I see is uh, kind of is chaos, right? So like you've got uh, particularly, so I, I work quite a lot with um, with startups that have kind of gone through kind of like a lot of growth. And, um, you know, when they were one engineering team, they um, they were kind of like they had these engineering practices that, that worked fine. And then they've kind of suddenly ballooned into five teams, 10 teams, 20 teams, and suddenly um, it's really hard to kind of like keep all the teams like pointing in the same direction because mm. they just don't have any of the kind of the muscles around kind of coordinating those teams. So that's, that's like the one challenge I see with, with those, in those situations is, is kind of like a lack of alignment. Right. Um, and then the, almost the opposite challenge is when you have teams that are kind of stuck in lockstep with each other and they're kind of like, they struggle to be, autonomous and independent. And so on, on the one hand, if you've got that kind of chaos, then um, people are all kind of moving in different directions. And so it's tough to make forward progress towards your goals. Uh, on the other hand, if you've got teams that are um, too much in lockstep with each other, then they're kind of like just kind of seized up and they can't make forward progress because they're, they're just stuck waiting for each other to move. So I think those are these two kind of like weirdly inverse kind of challenges, but both uh, both uh, things that, that companies struggle with. Interesting. And so what, what do uh, companies do to deal with those challenges? What do you recommend? Are there strategies they can follow? 
Yeah, I mean, I, so I think that the the key is figuring out how to balance these two things of kind of autonomy and alignment. So um, the on the on the one hand, I think to avoid that kind of that teams being in in lockstep um, or kind of like two coupled together, you've got to kind of set up structures that allow the teams to work independently. Um, and then the, the, the flip side of that though, is you, you've got to kind of like have enough coordination. You've got to have to have the right kind of kind of coordination practices, um, to allow those teams to, uh, to kind of be working in an aligned kind of like way, like, like pointing in the same direction. I think, give, yeah, give us some suggestions. I think so. The thing with alignment, I think is, is more interesting. That's kind of like what I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, and again, maybe that's partly because I'm, I've been working a lot with, with startups that are kind of going through these big pain, kind of growth, growing, growing pains, basically. And, and to, be, um, to be clear, when you say these startups, are you talking about software development organizations or are you talking about enterprises which just have a software development practice within their organization? Um, for me, it's primarily the, uh, the former. So it's like, companies that have, um, that were kind of small startups in this, in a, you know, small software development startups, mm -hmm. and they're now hitting, you know, that they've kind of hit product market fit. Right. They've, uh, they've kind of, they're starting to grow and they're starting yes, to yes. figure out, um, how to, how to shape themselves. Um, and I guess that, I guess the principles apply equally though, to enterprises, which are running their own development teams to run operational type, the software development as well. Yeah. 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 I think so. I think so. Okay. Sorry, sorry to interrupt your train of thought. No, that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so so I think the 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 thing that I see where teams are, like, are struggling with alignment is either they don't have a kind of a shared vision of where they're trying to get to. So let's let we'll take a, an example that is um, maybe a more kind of like common challenge in an enterprise scenario where um, the, uh, the the kind of a, uh, an executive has decided that we, we need to get this piece of software into uh, into the cloud or onto microservices, or we need to start doing uh, distributed tracing or like one of these kind of big things that spans multiple teams. Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, first of all, you need like a shared vision of like where we're going. Like, and, you know, so I kind of just stated some of those, right? Like we're doing uh, distributed tracing or we're going to be in Kubernetes, but that vision needs to be detailed enough that everyone actually gets it right. So sometimes you get executives that, um, or kind of architectural leaders who feel like they really understand, um, they kind of like, it's, it's obvious where we're going. Um, we just need all teams to kind of like start getting there, but if they don't spend a lot like a good amount of intentional effort really communicating that plan like having a plan is is actually something that sometimes teams don't have uh, mm -hmm. or organizations don't have they have this kind of vague idea of like oh yeah we really need to get into uh, the cloud or we really need to move to microservices but they don't really haven't really fought through the details but even if they have fought through the details a lot of times those that that plan hasn't been really well articulated and shared with teams so if you don't tell um, your teams where you're going, then it's not surprising if they're not going to go in the same direction. Um, so I, I like this analogy of like a road trip, right? Like if you think of, uh, you know, the journey is we're going to Disneyland or we're, we're moving to Kubernetes. Um, 
really clearly articulating that destination is the first step. Mm -hmm. um, and then th the next part is like sharing how we're going to get there. Right. So if we take, for example, uh, moving to Kubernetes, if you just say to everyone, you know, even if even if the executives kind of very clearly say to all the teams, our goal is by the end of Q2 2022 or whatever, we're going to be uh, all of our core services are going to be running in Kubernetes. If you just kind of say, like, that's the plan and then just leave it at that, um, it's not going to be a coordinated effort. Right. You're going to have like maybe all the teams are going to be like starting to like move their stuff to dockerize their things when actually we're not planning to dockerize them we're planning to break it apart and then um kind of move things into services so if you don't have a, uh, a like a really clear articulation of not just the destination but the vague shape of the journey then um, it's really hard for those teams to to you can't expect those teams to be acting um with alignment yep and then the flip side of that is so sometimes the reaction that like the i see organizations feeling that pain and their reaction is to say like oh gosh we need to just start telling these teams exactly what to do like they're not getting there or they're not doing it the right way so now let's just tell them exactly what to do um and kind of like start micromanaging and then you kind of get this real challenge of um you you know you you, you take away those teams autonomy and that means that they start doing stuff that just doesn't make sense in their context, but it's because someone who's like three layers above them or off in some architectural ivory tower somewhere has, has said like, you know, the way we're going to do this is we're going to use system X, Y, Z. But because they're so far removed from the, like the code face, like the, the reality of day to day, they, mm -hmm. they aren't able to make those um, good tactical decisions and the team members who should be able to kind of make those tactical decisions if they um if they've had that autonomy taken away from them or if they don't know what the plan is then they're not going to be able to make good decisions right so there's this kind of combination of team members or those individual engineering teams need to know the plan so that they can then make kind of like tactical decisions based on their reality on the ground versus um this kind of broad picture so have a plan articulate the plan and what you describe as a vague journey to get there. So no, you don't want to make it too specific. Yeah, yeah. And and, I, and it's kind of like, um, so it's like levels of Zoom on a map, right? So if I was saying to someone, um, it, we, 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 you know, we're going to, we, we're, we're doing this cross-country road trip. So we're going from, uh, you know, from from LA to um, to, I forget which one is in Florida, Disney World or Disneyland, the one that's really far away from LA. Um, <laughs> Florida is Disney World. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'll, Disney, I'll, I know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, never been to, I've never been to Eve, right? Um, so we're going to the ones in Florida. Um, yeah. So if we wanted to, if, if we wanted to, to describe to someone um, the entire journey, we wouldn't do that in turn-by-turn -turn directions, right? Like if you showed someone turn-by-turn -turn directions for the entire journey, that's just like overwhelming and it's too rigid. Like what if there's a traffic jam up ahead or what if um, we decide we wanna go uh, stop, you know, we take a longer lunch than we planned and we're, we're gonna need to re, you know, if you don't, if you, if you have this like very rigid locked in detail for the entire journey, that's not helpful. But mm. as like, the closer you get to kind of like the near future, the more kind of zoomed in you want that map to be, right? So for the next two hours or for the next 10 minutes, I need turn by turn directions. And, and maybe I'm the person coming up with those, those directions, but we need, we need a detailed plan 
for what we're doing in the immediate future. And then for like the next few hours, we need to know what highways we're going to be on, where we're going to stop for lunch, that kind of stuff. Um, and talking about that broader stuff in, in, the, in the wrong level of Zoom in too much detail actually means people can't see the, the, the important stuff, right? Like they're, they're fixating on like, oh, we're going to use this library or we're going to, um, we're going to, you know, work on this service first and not seeing the broad picture of like what, like the why behind the what, right? And then so mm -hmm. as, you, as you kind of zoom in and out, you need to use the appropriate um, communication mechanisms, planning mechanisms for the scope of the work that you're planning. Either like really big roadmappy stuff, like, like I see a lot of organizations using like the same software tools, um, like the same planning tools for a huge, like multi-year program of work and what the engineer is what an individual engineer is going to do for the next um day or so and it mm -hmm. turns out that actually it's just totally different content like there's just totally different sets of information you need it doesn't make it doesn't really make sense to use the same tool for that in my opinion yeah so it's more abstract the further you look out and more agile the, the, the closer you get to the actual implementation yeah yeah and there's there's an, you know another metaphor I'm not really a big fan of kind of military metaphors, but another metaphor that I think is, is really apt for this is this idea of uh, mission command versus um, command and control. So if you imagine um, what people, <clears throat> people think of the military as being the kind of like the epitome of like hierarchy and top-down structure, actually since I think the turn of the 20th century around that time, uh, all, like a lot of military organizations realized that what is a lot more effective is this thing called mission command where you have the general sitting up on the hill looking at the strategy and laying out the strategy and they hand down um, a strategic goals to the people on the ground and give them enough context to understand like what like what's the bigger thing we're going for and maybe you give those troops on the ground a suggestion of like here's how we think you should get there you know like we need to take that hill this enemy's here so you should probably go and do something to that enemy but actually we know the best blade plans kind of fail in the face of the enemy so just you know adjust your plan if you need to understanding that strategic goal so empowering teams to make to decide the tactics and having kind of a broader picture where you're deciding the strategy is kind of like nice um complementary kind of thing where everyone's working at the the right level of zoom depending on what their job is yeah Sound, and it's yeah, sounds like a bit of experimentation to get that balance right in terms of yeah. you're setting the the abstract goals and and giving them the uh, enough runway to be able to get there as well. Uh, you talk about um, cross team collaboration. Uh, you've recently written about it. And you said that code ownership can become part of the problem when trying to coordinate across multiple teams. Um, what what problems are, arise from this? Well, so I think, I think we're kind of like when we talk about code ownership, um, it comes down to this same kind of thing of like, how do we keep teams operating independently and not kind of stepping on each other's toes? Um, and the only way that I've really seen that work is to, to draw pretty clear boundaries around who owns what uh, area of the code. There's some kind of techniques you can use to try and um, make those boundaries a little more kind of 
um, diffuse. So kind of like inner source or like internal open source kind of ideas. But I think fundamentally um, you need, like if you want your code to remain healthy in the long term and not kind of turn into a mess in the long term, the only way to achieve that is with a clear kind of ownership um, of of areas of the code. So you, you kind of you need people to own areas of the code. But then the, the challenge becomes for any um, interesting uh, piece of work for anything that's kind of like really going to deliver a business impact, you're almost always going to be cutting across multiple teams code bases, right? Yes. Like, and, and unless you're a teeny tiny, teeny, teeny, tiny startup where you, you like a single team literally owns the entire kind of value stream from front end all the way down to the database and all the rest of it. Um, anytime that you're bigger than that, you end up for anything that is really impactful from a business perspective, it's generally going to cut across multiple areas of the business, um, which means it's going to necess almost necessarily cut across multiple, multiple teams. So then the challenge becomes, how do we coordinate these different teams work um, in, in an efficient way because the, the biggest cost that you've got with uh, or the biggest inefficiencies that you can kind of run into are around kind of cross-team collaboration right that's the, the reason why we uh, we break teams up into smaller teams is because communicating be between a bunch of people is hard so now communicating inside of that smaller team is easier but um, communicating across those team boundaries is hard so um, so, so what I've what I've seen a lot of organisations struggle with is not really having any kind of plan for or any intentional plan for how do we make a change happen across multiple code bases. Um, some some places just literally they, they they don't have a way of doing it. They just they they do like a like shoulder tapping or um or they just say like i don't know i guess this team should just go into this other team's code base and make the change and submit a pull request um well you've identified some of these patterns haven't you yeah. where these code ownership patterns from single owner to orphan to modular monolith can, can you run us through some of these these ownership patterns yeah, so so the the one that I've kind of just said I, I believe is kind of like the right way of doing it is is kind of this idea of single ownership. So um, having having clear own ownership boundaries that's a lot easier with um, that's a lot easier with kind of more uh, microservice architectures because um, you can you can you have clear boundaries around um, each service and you can say a given service is owned by a given team. It's quite easy. To do that it's quite nice and one-to-one -one. if you've got a uh, larger monolithic system um, like my definition of a monolith is a single deployable thing which is owned by multiple teams where the code is owned by multiple different teams yeah. um, and so if you're working in in that situation you can either have um, undefined or unclear or messy ownership um, which is kind of comes with a whole bunch of challenges kind of as, as i was just alluding to um or you can draw clear boundaries make an effort to draw clear boundaries inside of that monolith as to which teams own which code yeah. um and then the last thing which like you know the the there's um i think part of the reason a lot of organizations have been kind of moving towards 
microservices, apart from it just being trendy and buzzwordy, is um, that kind of clear code ownership. But what what can happen? Um, I guess it can also happen with monoliths, but I see it being more painful with microservices is sometimes just someone builds something and then they don't own it anymore or they don't want to own it anymore. So um, particularly when you've got organizations that have really enabled, really made it easy to spin up a new service, you get these situations where a given team operates like 10, 15, 20 services. And then at some point, the person that created the service kind of goes to a different team or goes to a different company or, you know, wins the lottery or whatever. And now you've got these services which are running in production and no one knows um, who owns them. And if you need to make changes to them, either because you want to make an improvement or because something's going wrong with them, um, you kind of have this challenge of, of not knowing who owns who owns what. So that's this kind of orphan code bases. And that happens a lot. That's, that's reality. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, I mean, to be honest, it happens with, it's not like it doesn't happen with monolithic systems. Um, but in, in general, because monolithic systems have these kind of more diffuse ownership patterns, people are more comfortable with making changes to like a, a part of the code base that they don't own. Like they're not going to want to make those changes, but if, if push comes to shove, someone's going to be like, uh, you know, I've got to get this thing to work. Okay, I guess I'll do it. But if it's like a different repo, you know, like a different repo that you don't even know how to stand the thing up locally to kind of like to start developing it, um, it's harder to kind of deal with that, um, those kind of orphan um, abandoned code kind of situations. How do these patterns emerge? Are they, are they a consequence of Conway's law or the, the organizational structure? Uh, is it the software projects that they're working on, like those modular monoliths? Um, can an or can an organization control it, dictate which pattern they use? I think that they generally do emerge organically up until the point that it becomes super painful, and then I think most organizations like go through this kind of pain point and they start um, trying to figure out how to solve it. Uh, so I, I, I've worked with a few organizations recently that have a, this ginormous, well, not ginormous, reasonably large monolith um, with diffuse ownership. And they're, they're kind of realizing that, gosh, like we can't get anything done in this area of the business because no one really owns the code and it's a mess and it's not getting any better because no one owns it. Um, mm. So I think like you get to this, this pain point where it becomes painful enough you know, it's kind of ironic, right? Or it's not ironic. It's kind of sad because um, you, in, often in these situations, the engineers that are working with this code have been like raising the red flag and kind of trying to tell people for years, like, this is a mess. No one owns it. But it mm -hmm. takes like a a business impacting thing, like, oh, we couldn't close that sales deal because we just couldn't get this feature implemented in time. Or we had an outage and we and it was really painful to, to fix because no one knew how to fix the code yeah. there's only then that that suddenly everyone's like wow this is a really something we should do something about <laughs> um that's kind of yeah that's it's a it's a little bit of a bummer so so then you know engineers uh th there becomes this impetus of like how do we fix this and that's generally where you see uh organizations get more intentional around things like ownership um, and starting to implement things like like a service catalog if you're if you're in that kind of microservices space or um, if you're more in kind of like a monolithy monorepo-y kind of space like starting to implement like code owner files or something like that that kind of defines 
um, these 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 code ownership kind of boundaries a little bit better. You've shared uh, some thoughts recently about technical debt as well. Uh, particularly, there's a, you've written an article on building a tech debt wall. Um, mm. After reading that, the, some of the concepts seem quite ob obvious and intuitive. It's a two-dimensional map of creating this tech debt wall. Um, run us through the wall concept because I think it's quite good. Yeah. Um, so this definitely is not my idea. So this was this was one of these things that. Um, so I, you know, I spent six years or so uh, as a consultant at ThoughtWorks, and there's all these practices, these agile engineering practices that a lot of ThoughtWorks teams do, and have kind of like they've kind of diffused inside of that kind of the hive the hive mind of, of ThoughtWorkers. Um, but we like for whatever reason they're not really discussed that much in the in the industry as a whole. Um, and so um, that you know, this this that blog post I wrote was just basically me kind of like trying to write down something that wasn't my idea, but that I'd seen be used successfully. Um, and so the idea of this is basically like empower engineers on the team to capture um, tech debt in a way that's kind of um, that's productive. So um, so what you do, you know, the mechanics of this is you have a, a, a wall, like so either a physical wall if you're a co-located team or a virtual wall like a Miro board or something like that. Um, and uh, every time you kind of like are discussing a piece of technical debt or you come across some kind of technical debt in the code base um, you, or architectural debt, something larger than that, you write it down on a sticky um, and you put it on the wall and where you place it on the wall is kind of, as you said, these kind of two dimensional, these two axes. So along one axis, you have kind of like the cost of fixing this debt, like how hard would it be to, to fix this thing? And across the other axis, you've got uh, the value, like how valuable would it be for us to fix this thing? Yeah, and yeah. it's see, it does, it's, it's kind of a like, well, duh. Yeah. Like you should, yeah. you should categorize that stuff, but like a lot of, like many teams don't, they either talk about this stuff um ad nauseum uh, mm. and it keep on re like litigating the same arguments of like we should fix this thing we should fix this thing or they just don't really like track that stuff at all um and so there's no visibility into into how much stuff is there um and and uh, on the flip side you kind of like maybe you're like you end up you get like a friday afternoon where the engineers have kind of got some spare time and they're going to fix some some uh, some bugs or kind of squash some tech debt. If you don't have, if you don't do that in a thoughtful way, you're just going to end up fixing the stuff that's most irritating to someone. Um, and sometimes that's that's great. But um, but if you've done this uh, job of kind of categorizing your tech debt, then you've got these kind of zones on this two dimensional map that make it really obvious where you should be working and where you shouldn't be working. So if something is cheap to fix and has high impact, then you should fix that. If something's cheap to fix, but it has low impact, then maybe you shouldn't fix that. Maybe you should get, do something else instead. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, yeah, so, so capturing the stuff and categorizing it lets you um, kind of manage this tech debt in, in, a, in a slightly better way. And I guess, because we, we, you know, our, uh, we do post our tech debt in a wall, but normally it's a one-dimensional wall called a backlog in our you know, Jira right. board or something like that. And, and yes, we prioritize that, you know, those tickets, um, you know, maybe it's a product owner or something prioritizing those tickets. And I guess subconsciously they're making some of these decisions about value mm -hmm. proposition of the, of the, the um, tech debt. 
But this just formalizes it and it makes it very visual. It is this cost benefit analysis and just, it's very easy. Let's just target those ones on the top right-hand uh, corner of the grid where, right. the, yeah, the, where there's contri- contributing a lot of value um, uh, to the least amount of cost, right? Yeah. And it's also, I think it's also like empowering um, for, for engineers where um, you're not, um, it's kind of like, it's, it's this uh, win-win where for, if you're a, a product manager or a scrum master or product owner or whatever, who's kind of prioritizing things, it makes it very clear, like the, the cost and benefit. So it, it helps them do that work. But it's also a way for engineers to really uh, clearly communicate the, the, the cost and the benefit without having to get into a meeting and doing planning poker or anything like that. Um, it's just kind of there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it also sometimes has is a really good way to kind of spark a discussion within engineers. So a lot of times, a lot, of, I mean, I, this is, I, I kind of miss co-located teams. Um, a lot of times you, you literally, you'll see an engineer walk up and put something on the sticky and someone else who's working near them will look over and see what it is. And then they'll be like, oh, they'll start this whole kind of conversation. They'll have a little discussion or argument, disagreement about like how easy it would be to fix or how impactful it would be. I think those like, setting a culture where you have those conversations and you have those conversations in a very um kind of collaborative kind of like flat way where it's not like the tech lead decides what stuff we should be fixing but it's like everyone's empowered to identify problems and uh, suggest solutions i think there's a really good kind of cultural benefit to doing that too yeah i mean that's interesting you mentioned yeah benefits of co-located how you miss those co-located environments i mean it's it seems, so long, it seems so long ago. Since we had it does. It does. I'm, I'm like I'm like one of the I think one of the very few engineers that actually really likes like working in big open space things like where you know like where everyone's just sat around the same kind of like open table. Um, yes. I know most people hate it, and I know that I'm weird, um, but I just I've the best, the most high performing, most fun teams I've worked on have all been in that situation. Um, and I think you can replicate some of it with asynchronous things. Um, I definitely think there's a ton of benefits to um, being kind of re- remote first. And I, I think I would advocate for that generally nowadays, um, but there is just that that really nice organic kind of feeling of everyone being in the same room together. And the, the serendipitous overhearing of conversations is something that when, I, when I've been a, a tech lead has been like one of my real kind of like most useful kind of tools that I have is just sitting there pairing with someone else or whatever, and like overhearing conversations. Uh, There's just so much value um, that comes from that. Or at the pub afterwards talking about it. Uh, in uh, one of your blogs, you recently talked about how teams can create platforms that no one in the organizations ends up ever using. So someone develops it for themselves, think it's the best thing for the sliced bread, but their use case was perhaps too narrow for their for themselves. Is that is that the concept you're you're, you're talking about here? Yeah. So <clears throat> the bit like this, I see this all the time. Platform teams that don't realize they're building a product. Right? Like that's the fundamental thing that I think a lot of platform teams struggle with is they think that they um, they don't really see that they're that they're operating in a marketplace, they have customers, they have competitors, 
and um, and so they don't operate as if they're building a product and um, what that means is they they build stuff that no one actually wants or they build stuff that isn't um, built in such a way uh, as to service their customers needs um, and it's and I think it's particularly tr it's particularly tricky for platform teams that are building kind of where they kind of feel like they're the customer right so like if you're building software for um i don't know if you're if you're if you're building like software for for kids toys or something then you know that you're not the end user and you're not you don't kind of just accidentally just build something that you would like to build or that you would like to use but most platform teams i've i've seen unless they've unless they've really kind of like learned their lesson through through kind of pain, uh, most platform teams fall into this trap of thinking about what would be useful for them. And sometimes, and there's this kind of like, um, there's some memes or there's some kind of um, tropes in the industry that reinforce this, right? So like eat your own dog food or uh, drink your own champagne or whatever. That's a, yeah. that's a good thing in general. Um, but with platform teams, what it ends up being is, platform teams build something that is fit for their purposes and like that and, and they consider themselves to be the guinea pigs mm -hmm. um but then they've already built the thing and then they get feedback from their users if they're actually looking for feedback often they're not looking for feedback they just find find out um they've built something that like actually the the people who they should actually be building this thing for they it's not really fit for purpose mm -hmm. so I, I see that um I see that happen a lot, and uh, I think the, the biggest solution is, or the, the key to the, the key solution here is uh, for someone in that team to be kind of essentially wearing like some kind of like product management hat. You don't need necessarily a product manager on the team, but you need someone or some you know group of people who are doing the kind of things that a product manager does when they're building a, like a product for an external customer. Yeah, and like you say, they should be thinking about better a product, engaging with the stakeholders, the users of the product, and marketing it within the organization as a product. Yeah, yeah, and that, and is that kind of weird stuff like marketing that just seems so people don't like. I, I think it just for for I think for a lot of people who are focused on building platforms, they they think the idea of marketing it is kind of silly. Partly because they sometimes feel like they've got a captive audience. Like, well, no, um, you know, people are going to have to use my thing. Otherwise, you know, they, they don't have any other way of doing blah. Um, it is very impressive how good engineers are at finding another way to do blah if they don't like it, right? Like, every, like these engine, the people who say, oh, well, they will, um, they'll have to use our thing because it's the it's the official thing. Those exact same people have absolutely at some point in their career found a way to work around some rule that they didn't like they've used their own credit card to buy some service or they've implemented their own version of a thing because they don't like the thing that the, they were given so engineers have this kind of persnickety they're really awkward customers right they're really annoying customers sometimes um but the engineers that are building platforms sometimes don't realize that other engineers are like them and they're gonna um decide to use an open source tool instead of the internal tool or they're going to go and buy a, buy a tool um, that they prefer, or they're going to write their own, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So even though it doesn't feel like you're in a competitive marketplace, you almost always are, even if you're just competing with people building their own thing, because they don't like the color of the, of the thing that you built. Yeah. 
Interesting topics. You, you write about some interesting stuff, Pete. How, how can our audience follow you, uh, what you're writing about, what you're talking about? Uh, what, what, where are your social channels here? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. On Twitter, I am PH1. Um, or you can also read my, uh, my blog, um, and that's at thepete.net. Great. Pete, thanks for joining us on the show today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there, because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! <laughs>